Uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. As I said last week, we're going to look at this in three parts. So last week was part one. This week is part two. Uh, I'll read the whole of 6, 1 through 14, but our focus this morning will be on verses 5 through 11. All right, Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, I'll read through verse 14. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its, in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Well, last week, like I said, we began what will be a three-week journey through this section, these 14 verses. And last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4 as we considered the question that comes up at the end of Romans 5. After Romans 5, when Paul goes through that passage there where he talks about the comparison between Adam and Christ, at the end he says that the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace overabounded or abounded much more. To cover our sin so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how chapter five ends. And then Paul anticipating a question, as he often does throughout the book of Romans, he presents a teaching and then he anticipates any kind of questions that may come up about that teaching. And the question that he anticipates here as he comes into Romans six is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, does the gospel of Jesus Christ lead people to continue in sin? That's the question. And as we looked at verses 1 through 4 last week, Paul's response is that this is an absurd statement. This is an impossible statement. And that's why he says, certainly not. Or, again, I like the way the King James translates it. He says, God forbid. God forbid that something like this should happen, that the gospel of Jesus Christ could lead one to lead a life of continual sin. This way, is, this way of thinking is illogical. It is impossible. 
And it is ill-suited for a Christian. So we also looked uh, last week at a, a view of Christianity, which we called antinomianism, which is a fancy word that says, I don't like the law. Anti-law, nomian is the Greek word for law, nomos. And this anti-law way of looking at Christianity is that you're saved by grace and then you're sort of just kind of free. You've got the get out of hell free card and you can kind of just do whatever because grace abounds over your sin. Whenever you sin, God's grace abounds to cover your sin. So it doesn't really matter how you live your life. As long as you've made a confession at some point in your life, you've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we also looked at the flip side to that. So the flip side to antinomian way of thinking is a legalist way of thinking. A way of thinking that likes to burden Christians with not only what we are required to do in God's law, but also extra requirements that are not specified in God's word. They add to God's law. They add to the word of God, the traditions of men. And if you've ever read through the Gospels, as I'm sure many of you have many times, you notice that's one of Jesus' most kind of verbal attacks against the Pharisees. When they, when they criticize him for not doing certain things, he says, you add to the law of God your own traditions, and you make the law of God nothing. But this antinomian way of thinking, this antinomian way of living, seeks to be free from the law of God, and it does so by doing Three things. First, it cheapens grace. An antinomian uh, way of thinking in a way, uh, this kind of way of Christianity cheapens grace. It makes grace cheap. It also creates a sort of a two-tiered Christian society. Okay, you've got these Christians who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, but haven't yet moved up to the second level of making him the Lord of your life. So you've got this sort of two-level way, you know, grouping of Christians in the kingdom. And then the third thing it does is it creates a warped view of what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that the saints persevere in their faith because God's Holy Spirit preserves them by his working in us through his spirit and his word. They create a warped view of this that, and they almost turn it into a cliche, this once saved, always saved. Again, it doesn't matter how you live your life as long as you've made some profession of faith. You can point to some point in your life where you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, uh, confessed your faith, you're good. And then finally, we closed last week by looking at these verses in uh, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we looked at this language of baptism, this, this idea that the word means it's, you know, it can mean to dip, it can mean to immerse, it can mean to submerge. And it speaks of our blessed union with Christ. We are immersed into Christ. We are submerged into Christ, if you want to put it that way. We are united with Christ, and baptism is a sign and a seal that points to that union. So we were baptized into his death, we were buried with him through, death and, uh, through baptism into death, and then we were raised with him to what? 
to walk in newness of life. In fact, Paul uses here the language of purpose. In other words, we were baptized into death of Christ so that, in order that, for the purpose of walking in newness of life. So the reason why Paul answers the question in Romans 6.1 with an emphatic no, uh, was such an emphatic negative, is because the purpose for which we were saved was not to live a life of wanton, cavalier sin. We were saved so that we could live a life of new obedience, a new life of walking in newness of life. We have a new life with a new purpose. And this, one, this leads me now to the subject of sanctification because we were talking about this last week and we were kind of looking at the Heidelberg. We looked at questions 60 and 61 that talked about our justification by faith. And then we were kind of making the distinction between justification and sanctification. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's moving now through you know, what he's talked about earlier in chapters 3 and 4, justification, we're now moving into sanctification. Now, we mentioned this at the very beginning of our study of the book of Romans, that Romans is not a systematic theology. It's not Paul's systematic theology. It is a letter. It is a letter he wrote to a real church in a, in a real place that was going through real circumstances in life. But there is a structure to Romans. And there is a sort of structure that sort of resembles what you see in many systematic theologies. In fact, I think it was Fred, you know, some time ago who pointed out that the Heidelberg Catechism is structured after the way Romans is structured. So you've got in the Heidelberg, you can, you can structure in three broad categories. You've got guilt. You've got grace, and then you've got gratitude. And that's kind of what you see in Romans. He emphasizes first the guilt that we have due to sin. He emphasizes the grace that we have through our justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then he, and then he starts to emphasize our gratitude. What do we do now? How do we live in light of this gospel? So it is not surprising that if Romans, if, as we have been saying, if Romans is Paul's most detailed description of the gospel, it is not surprising that we see a sort of systematic organization or arrangement of the material in this letter. Now, I do want to speak on the relationship between justification and sanctification, because as like I said last week, we kind of got a little bit into that discussion, and I want to talk a little bit about this, because... The relationship between justification and sanctification is very vital for how we understand our Christian faith. It's very vital. Now, there's two ways in which we can get that relationship wrong. The first way, as we saw last week, is the antinomian way of easy believism, which tends to separate justification from sanctification. You can be justified, but you don't have to yet be sanctified. That's that's a process you can work toward where you become sanctified. But you can be justified, but not sanctified. In other words, a Christian can be saved. They can profess faith in Jesus Christ, but they haven't yet made him Lord of, his, of their life. Okay, That's what they call sanctification. Now, Christians can move out of this 
carnal Christian lifestyle by making Jesus the Lord of his or her life as they move towards sanctification, but they tend to separate these two. The second error, or the second way in which we get this wrong, when I say we, I don't mean us here. I mean we as in people in general. And the second way we get this wrong is, is, is the way you see in Roman Catholic theology. So whereas the antinomian separates justification and sanctification, the Roman Catholic will confuse the two and kind of merge them into one. Okay? They see justification as the goal of a lifelong pursuit of holiness and good works. In other words, what we in the Reformed world believe is sanctification in the Roman Catholic mind is justification. And you see this through their process of how they utilize the sacraments and how they are in a state of grace, how they're out of state of grace, and how they maintain a state of grace. So in the Roman Catholic Church, one is infused with grace at baptism. So when they are baptized, God pours his grace into them. Grace is infused into that person when they're baptized as an infant. And then, of course, then they lose that grace when they commit sin. So they, they, they fall out of a state of grace when they commit sin. So that's why you have the sacrament of penance and confession in which they go and they confess their sins and then the priest gives them a penance to perform and pronounces absolution and they're back into a state of grace. So you're constantly in a state of grace, out of a state of grace, working your way toward a completed state of grace. And then, of course, when you die, and most people in the Roman Catholic Church who die don't have enough justification to enter into heaven, so they go where? Purgatory. Purgatory. They go to the hot place for a little while to purge away any remaining uh, impurities so that they can then enter in. So the whole process is set up so that the person in the Roman Catholic system can be justified in God's sight. So God will look at a person and if, they, you know, if they've performed enough penance in their life, and if they've done whatever they need to do in purgatory, then they, are, they have a sort of an, an inherent righteousness now of their own that they can now enter into heaven. Now, needless to say, this is what the Reformers fought against, one of the things they fought against during the Protestant Reformation. So the key in this is in seeing the relationship between justification and sanctification as one of distinction and connection. So they are different, but they are connected. They're not the same, that's the Roman Catholic error, but the two are inseparably connected, which is against the antinomian error. So before I move on, let's just come up with a working definition of sanctification. What is sanctification? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 35, says, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So I'll repeat that again. So sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man, the whole person, after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. So that's the Shorter Catechism, question 35. You can also see this in Belgic Confession, Article 24. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16, question 43. 
deals with this a little bit. Lord's Day 32 in question 86 deals with this a little bit. And the larger catechism, question 75, has a much longer detailed answer than you see here in question 35. But there are four things that this definition gives us. First, it says that sanctification is a work. It is a work. God is working in you. He is renovating you. He is making you a new person. So it is a work. But it is also a work of God's free grace. So not only is it a work, it is a work of free grace. The Christian life is a life of grace. It is a life lived by faith, lived through grace. But it's not just a work of free grace. It is also a renewing work. Sanctification is a renewing work. We are being renovated into the image of Christ. So we are being changed. It's almost as if you've got a lump of clay and God is the potter. Okay, you know, God is the potter. We are the clay, you know, that song or whatever. And God is working us and he's molding us and he's shaping us through trials, through our life experiences, through everything that comes into our lives. He's molding us and shaping us. And the end product is to be that we look like his son, Jesus Christ. He's renewing us in his image. Because Jesus, while we are in the image of God, Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. He is the exact imprint of the image of God. So he is the perfected exemplar, if you will. He is the perfected form. And we are made then to look like that form. So it is a work. It is a work of God's free grace. It is a renewing work of God's free grace. And fourthly and finally, it is an enabling work. Sanctification is an enabling work. This is something that we, uh, we are more and more enabled to do. So the more we live this life, the more we continue to fight sin in our life, the more we try to put off the old man, put on the new man, we are then made more and more into God's, into the image of Christ. As it says, we are more and more enabled to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit doing his work in and through us with the word. In fact, I like the fact that right over here, thy word is truth. John 17, 17, that whole verse says, sanctify them. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified by the Spirit through the Word. So that's sanctification. Now, how are sanctification and justification related? Again, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 77, this is a long answer, but it is probably the best and most succinct um, statement I've ever read on the difference and the connection between justification and and sanctification. Westminster Larger Confession, question and answer 77, which says, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. And they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit, his spirit infuses grace and enables to the exercise thereof. In the former, that is justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, sin is subdued. Justification is worked equally and freely in all believers. And we are freed then from the revenging wrath of God. And that imperfectly in this life. 
that we never fall into condemnation. In sanctification, sanctification is neither equal in all nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up into perfection. That's a long answer there, but I've summarized it in three parts. So justification, we all get the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us. In justification, no one is lacking any righteousness. It is freely given to us by grace through faith, equally in all, to the point where we are then freed from the wrath of God, equally in all. Sanctification is worked in us as a process. It is infused. Grace is infused, and we are enabled then to to work toward God. In justification, sin is fully and freely pardoned. You are pronounced innocent. In sanctification, it is being subdued. You are working more and more, more and more by uh, killing sin in your life to bring it under your submission so you no longer obey its lusts. And then finally, justification is equal in all, but sanctification is not equal in all. Some people progress further in it than others. Our Heidelberg says, and I think it's in question 86, one of those questions, it says that the obedience to the law of God, even in the most holy of men, the most holy of men make a small progression in, in holiness. Okay? In other words, even the best of us don't attain to that perfect righteousness in the law. So the two are inseparably related. A person who is justified will not fail to be sanctified. Now that sanctification may not be equal in all of us. Some of us may be more sanctified than others. But the point is, is that there is not a person who is justified by grace through faith that is not also being sanctified. Yet you cannot confuse the two. They are two separate things that are inseparably linked together. Okay, all of that was just an introduction as we now get into to the verses that we're going to look at this morning. So Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. I just felt it was important to kind of go over that because as we're moving into sanctification, it's important to know what is sanctification and how it's related to justification. Because like I said, there are two ways that we get it wrong and one way to get it right. So here, as we look now, Paul begins this section here in verses 5 and 6 by continuing the thought that he started in verses 3 and 4, namely being baptized into the death of Christ, where he says in verses 5 and 6, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So the first thing Paul notes here is that we have been united together in the likeness of his death. And that phrase, united together, translates a word in the Greek which only appears here in the entire New Testament. And the word, if you care, is sumphutos. And it carries the idea of being grown together, sort of being knitted together, being planted together. So it is the idea of being planted together with Christ. Okay. We spoke last week of the idea of engrafting. We are engrafted. Think of John 15 where Jesus talks about he is the true vine. So he is the vine and all the branches then are 
abiding in him. They are engrafted into him. So a branch that abides in the true vine will bear much fruit. If it does not bear fruit, then the, his father, who is the vine dresser, will come and will prune that branch off, and it gets tossed aside and becomes kindling, right? That's the idea here. We looked at the idea of baptism as a sign and seal of this engrafting. So our, our baptism points to the reality that we have been united to Christ both in his death and in his resurrection. And now Paul is going to expand on this idea here. And then that phrase where he says, we have been, where it says united together, we have been united together. We may have talked about this before. Um, This is kind of digging into the language a little bit, but that phrase, we have been, is translating a word in the Greek that is in what they call the perfect tense. The perfect tense. So you've got present tense, stuff that's happening now, past tense, stuff that happened in the past, future tense, obviously something that hasn't happened yet. Perfect tense is something that's happened in the past, it's completed in the past, and it has ongoing effects now in the present. And that's what is here. It says, we have been united with him in his death. We have been united together in the likeness of his death. So it's happened in the past, and it still takes effect now. So this planting together, this uniting together, is something that happened in the past. Now you may say, well, when did this happen? That's a good question. I have an answer. (laughs) Our union with Christ is something that God has accomplished in eternity past. In eternity past, before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, Just as he, that is the Father, chose us, the church, in him, that is Christ, we were chosen in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we were chosen in Christ. We were chosen to be united to Christ before the foundation of the world. However, it is in, in our life, this, becomes, this union becomes a reality in our life when we've been born again. When the Spirit, through his workings, we're going to get to that in John chapter 3, I think Lord willing, next week, where he talks about the new birth. And he talks about how the spirit is like the wind. The wind blows where it will. You don't see it, but you hear its effects. Well, the same thing. You don't know when someone is born again, but you see the effects of it. And when the spirit creates that new birth in you, when the spirit regenerates you, that's when what has been promised and declared in eternity past becomes a reality in our life. In fact, as we said last week, this union with Christ is so inclusive that in a very real sense, that likeness, the likeness of his death, when Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, we died with him on the cross 2,000 years ago. So his death becomes our death. His resurrection from the dead becomes our resurrection from the dead. And this truth is so established that Paul can say, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Just as we were in the likeness of his death, so we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. It is certain. It's a sure thing. The one must of necessity follow the other. And just as death could not hold the only begotten Son of God, so too 
Death cannot hold those who are in union with him. Now Paul goes on in verse 6 to mention that our old man was crucified with him. Now, who is the old man? Now, don't, you know, if you're, if you're older gentlemen, don't raise your hand when I say who is the old man. It's not a, it's not a question of age. <laughs> it is not a question of age. It is a question of status. Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ? The old man is the one that was born in Adam. Okay? We were all born in Adam through our natural birth. And the one who was in Adam when Adam sinned in the garden, that's, that's what we are. That is the old man. It is that person. That self that was crucified with Christ. Just as Christ died to sin, we died to sin. Our old man, the one that was born in Adam, is dead. It is dead. We quoted this last week. I'll quote it again because I just love this verse. It's Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Same idea here. United with him in his death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The old man is dead. But Christ lives in me. The new man is alive. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Christ was crucified on the cross, all those who were in union with him were also crucified on the cross. Now that man, that person, that old man is done away with. The body of sin, as Paul says here, has been destroyed. Our bodies, which were one time slaves to sin, have died in Christ. They have died with Christ. That means our bodies are no longer slaves of sin. Which is why Paul then can make what appears to be an obvious statement in verse 7, where he says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. It's kind of a, just follows from what he's been talking about already. But this statement has a profound implication in regards to our sanctification. In Adam, by our union with Adam, we became enslaved to sin. So when we were born in Adam, we were born in our natural birth, we were born in a state of slavery. Like, well, we're Americans, right? We're free. American. No, you were born in a state of slavery to sin. Okay? His, his sin, Adam's sin, brought sin and death into the world. We saw that in chapter 5. His sin caused a spiritual and physical reign of death. We also looked at that when we looked at Romans chapter 5. But because of our union with Christ, his death now becomes our death. So in Christ... We have died to sin. That's what Paul is saying here. And that death to sin frees us. We've been liberated. It frees us from our bondage to slavery and sin. So now we can sing the old spiritual, right? Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. That reign of death has been broken in our lives. So now when Christ died, as we've been saying, he didn't stay dead, right? Thank God for that. When Christ died, he didn't stay dead. Death could not hold him. So Christ was resurrected from the dead. And similar, similarly, as we've been saying all along, our union with Christ means that when he was raised from the dead, we too have been raised from the dead. 
That's what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 8. If we die with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. So as his death becomes our death, his life becomes our life. And that phrase, we shall also live with him, underscores the fact that the life we now live is vitally connected to the resurrected life of Christ. Again, he is the true vine. We are the branches. And as long as we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. His life will flow through us and we will bear much fruit. Apart from him, we wither away and die. Now notice Paul's use of that phrase there, we believe. So the truth that we live together with Christ, if in fact we have died with Christ, is an article of faith for Paul. This is something Paul wants to hang his hat on. This is an article of faith, but it's an article of faith that is grounded and supported by the fact that that Christ defeated death through his resurrection. So just as Christ defeated death through his resurrection, Paul now can state he believes that he also will defeat death through the resurrection of Christ. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ultimate death blow to death, as he says in verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Christ, over him. He defeated death on the cross. And as Paul says, death no longer has dominion over him, which implies that death did have, at one point, had dominion over Christ. And in fact, that is true. It had a dominion over him for a short period of time, for three days to be precise. We've, this is, I found an answer to, to the question about descending into heaven. <laughs> so we, we talked about this before, but you know, the Apostles' Creed says, where, think about where it says, you know, he, was, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, and then that phrase that, causes so much consternation amongst people, he descended into hell. But that's what it means here. This, this, this part, this describes in part what we call Christ's state of humiliation. Okay, theologians often speak about the two states or two stages of Christ's life and ministry, his humiliation and his exaltation. Now, if you think about how the way the Apostles' Creed is structured, you see his hum- humiliation into exaltation. His humiliation is seen in that he was born, right? Born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered. He died. He was buried. He descended into hell. All five of those talk about Christ's state of humiliation. In other words, he, by being born, if you think about what Paul says in Philippians 2, he was born in the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He set aside the prerogatives of, of deity to take on human flesh. That is a humiliation. Okay, it is, it is a kind of a lessening of the glory of God in a sense as he kind of comes down into this low state. So he was born, he suffered, he died, he was buried, descended into hell. Those are the, the states of Christ's humiliation. In fact, again, the larger catechism, question 50 says, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death. It says Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead under the power of death till the third day. 
which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So the idea of Christ descending into hell is, is sort of explained by the fact that he, was, he continued in the state of death, buried in the grave under the power of death for three days. Death had dominion over him for three days. But as Paul says, he no, it no longer has dominion over him because he was resurrected from the dead. He was under the dominion of death, but his resurrection from the dead broke that dominion that death held over him. And this knowledge that Christ defeated the, uh, the dominion of death gives Paul then confidence that because of our union with Christ, death will have no dominion over us any longer as well. So then Paul now closes out this section in Romans 6 with a bang in verses 10 and 11 where he says, For the death that Christ died, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise. Now he's, gonna, he's taught us a lot of stuff about it. Now he's going to get it. Here's a command. Here's, here's, here's what to believe. Here's what you do. Likewise, you also Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to, Christ, to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul says that the death he died, he died to sin once for all, he is speaking again of the purpose or the goal of Christ's death. Jesus Christ took on a human form. He lived in human flesh. He lived a perfectly righteous life according to all of God's commandments. So that, for the purpose that, he could die once to sin. His death ended the reign and the dominion of sin and death. He defeated sin and death once for all. That's a great place for an amen. He defeated death once for all. Amen. Okay. And as we've been saying all along, the tyranny of sin and death that was ushered in by Adam's sin was destroyed. It was brought to nothing by Jesus Christ. Just some other scriptures that bear this out in Hebrews chapter 9 in verses 26 through 28. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, for then, he must, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So speaking of Jesus. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So Christ died once for the sins of many so that he can then bring many into salvation when he returns. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And now by his glorious resurrection life, the life that he lives now to God, and thus, by virtue of our union with Christ, Paul is now going to draw a conclusion for us. He's going to say, okay, now that you are united with him in his death and united with him in his resurrection life, what are you to do? How ought you to believe? How are you to act in light of this? 
We study doctrine not just so that we get a head full of knowledge, but so that we know what to do. Doctrine leads to duty through the door of doxology. So doctrine leads to praise, and then it leads to duty or thankfulness, thankful obedience unto Christ. And because Jesus Christ died once to sin, so too we must, as Paul says, reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Jesus died to sin, so too we died to sin who are in Christ. And the dominion that sin held over us has been, as we've been saying all along, has been broken by our vicarious death in Christ. So as a result, then, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin. Reckoning is an accounting term, okay? It's, it's the word logizomai, and it ta- it's taken from the world of accounting. It speaks of considering or a calculation or a mental reckoning. And this is the second key in our sanctification. The second key is reckoning. Last week, we talked about something we need to know. You need to know some things. Now you need to reckon some things to be true. If you think about how faith is described, and I think it's question 21 in the Heidelberg, talks about a certain knowledge and then a ready willingness to obey. So you have a knowledge. Faith includes three things. It includes knowing what is true. It includes believing what is true. And then acting upon, upon what is true or trust. So faith or knowledge, belief, and trust. Okay, And we talked about knowledge last week. There are certain things we need to know, certain truths that we've learned in this chapter we need to know, and then we need to reckon and consider them true. In a nutshell, reckoning is to believe and accept what God says about us is true. And what God says about us is that sin has been defeated in you. You are dead to sin. That is what the Word of God is telling us. You have died to sin. Now, Don't live in it any longer. Reckon this to be true. We're always going to struggle with indwelling sin, and we'll see that when we get to Romans 7. But in our battle with sin, we need to consider the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The power of sin has been broken. You are a slave, the the, the chains have been broken. You are free. As we'll see later on in Romans 6, you're not just free to wander the wilderness by yourself, but just for now, we are free from the power of sin. It no longer has any control over you. The only control sin has over you is the control that you give it. But it has no control over you. You have died to its reign. We often talk about sanctification as a process, and that's true. It is a process, as we just saw earlier. It is a work of God's grace. And that word work implies process. But there's also a sort of a definitive aspect to our sanctification, a sort of a once-and-done part of our sanctification. And that break, that definitive break, comes when we are in our union with Christ, when that power of sin has been broken. We have been freed from sin definitively once for all time. There's no freeing from sin. The power of sin has been broken in you definitively. 
We are sanctified in the sense that we have been freed from the power and dominion of sin through Christ. And we are now freed to love and serve God. So just closing this section up uh, from a quote from a commentary. As, our, as to our standing before God, we are seen as having died with Christ and having risen with him. This is pictured in baptism. Our death, when Christ, uh, our death with Christ ends our history as men and women in Adam. God's sentence on our old man was not reformation, but death. And that sentence was carried out when we died with Christ. Now we are risen with Christ to walk in newness of life. Sin's tyranny over us has been broken. And because sin has, because sin has nothing to say to a dead person, now we are free to live for God. Well, that's it for this section. Next week, we're going to see the third key in our sanctification as Paul begins uh, verse 12 with a command to not yield to sin any longer.